This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. So let's turn to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 11 to the end of the chapter to verse 21. And let's read these words of God together. Paul writes, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Honestly, there are a lot of topics in the New Testament that I know very little about from personal experience. A lot from books, very little from my own life, but reconciliation is something I can speak with some experience on uh, through the continual journey of marriage. And any of you who've been married for any length of time who still have a genuine relationship with your spouse knows that only happens through a continual and ever-growing process of reconciliation. I'm a conflict avoider by nature. And I would prefer either to keep people at arm's length so it never gets to a situation where there is conflict that has to be dealt with, or simply to avoid people that have where there's some offense between us because it is difficult, it is very difficult to affect reconciliation. To take a relationship that has basically been pain and offense and enmity and to turn that into genuine love and friendship. And when you live life together, whether with, it's with a family member or a roommate or your spouse, there will be 
conflict. If you spend any amount of time together, you will, you will cause each other pain. And you will, in fact, inflict deep wounds on each other's heart. And you experience painful ruptures in your relationship or your friendship or your marriage or the parent-child relationship is just a series of jagged edges between the two of you. And to repair that relationship requires difficult conversations, long, hard conversations where the masks are peeled away, where the truth is spoken, however harsh it might be, where you make the supernatural decision to forgive and reconcile and bring real healing into your relationship. And when that reconciliation happens, when things are really dealt with, not just ignored and shoved to the side, but really dealt with when the truth is spoken, where there is forgiveness, there is this marvelous sweetness and openness that results. And at last you experience real face-to-face, heart-to-heart contact with another person. Reconciliation is hard, and that's why probably many of us feel like we have relationships in our lives that are beyond reconciliation. Too much has been said, too much has been done, and now there's denial, there's bitterness, there's resentment, and frankly, it's a lot easier just to walk away and cut people out of your life. You know, the heart of Paul's message, the heart of Paul's gospel is reconciliation with God. This jagged relationship, this alienation, this estrangement, this distance and coldness we have between ourselves and God. Paul's message is that reconciliation is not only possible, but God has achieved it and he's offering it to all of us. Every single human being suffers from a broken relationship with their creator. And we've chosen in many ways, small and large, to cut ourselves off from the source of life, to go our own way, to make deliberate choices, to sever the relationship between ourselves and God and curve our lives in on ourselves in sin and self-worship. And our greatest need is to have that relationship Mended to have it restored to be reconciled with God and then to be put right with ourselves and with other people and with all of God's wonderful creation. And Paul's focus, his single focus is to announce to the world that God has made reconciliation possible to everyone who wants to receive it. And for Paul, this is not about building up some spectacular ministry for his own glory so he can gain followers and put up billboards and have money pouring into his coffers. Paul is driven by his service to this gospel of reconciliation. And therefore, Paul acts in utmost sincerity and integrity. And what is looming before Paul is the day that he will stand before the judgment seat 
of Christ. That was the last verse of the previous passage that we meditated on together. And therefore, Paul is filled with the healthy fear of God. That life is not a game, that it is in dead earnest, and there is a day when every human being will have to stand before their creator and give an account. And filled with this holy fear of God, Paul presses on to persuade people to be reconciled to God so they can stand before him on that day with joy and not with terror. And then Paul opens up this very rich doctrine of reconciliation with God. And there are not very many verses here, but they're, they're so thick. They're so dense that we need to impose a little order of our own on them. So let's take some different aspects of reconciliation and meditate on them together. First of all, let's talk about the ultimate source of reconciliation. Where does reconciliation come from? And human religion that we're also naturally pulled towards, we assume that the source of reconciliation is ourselves. What do I do? What do I need to do to fix this relationship? How can I get myself reconciled to God? What can I do to get God to accept me? What rituals, what disciplines, what activities, what sacrifices must I undergo in order to reconcile God to myself? And Paul's gospel is the very opposite of that. It's the inverse of that. Because in Paul's gospel, God is the reconciler, and we are the reconciled. God is the active one who does the reconciling, and we are the passive receiving party who are miraculously reconciled by the action of God. That's why Paul says in verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. God is the reconciling party. He's the one who is the source of reconciliation, and he is the one fixing the broken relationship. And when you think about it, when you think about it, that is an amazing fact. Because in every normal human relationship... It's the person who's broken the relationship who has the responsibility to fix that relationship. If I go to a party and make some cruel joke at my wife's expense, it will be a very quiet taxi ride on the way home. This may or may not be an actual scenario. And she will go to her room and shut the door and be very quiet. And I will realize there is a coldness in our relationship. And I know I can't sit there and wait for her to make things right. It's my job as the one who's been a total jerk to fix that, to, you know, send her flowers and apologize and perhaps even go to those people and say, I was a moron and very selfish and stupid. Please forgive me. In that situation, my wife is not the one who sends me flowers and chocolates or the one who pursues me for reconciliation. But amazingly, in the gospel, God is the one sending the flowers, sending the chocolates. He is seeking us, the sinners, the offenders, the ones who have broken the relationship. God, amazingly, is seeking us out to repair that relationship. 
God actively seeks reconciliation with lost sinners. God is always on the move, bringing lost people back to himself. And if he waited for us to make the first move, he would be waiting forever. God takes the initiative and he makes the sacrifice to fix what's broken between us. It's the stunning grace of our God who, while we were enemies, reconciled us to himself through his son, Romans 5. You know, I don't want you to be confused and think that the gospel is a set of instructions for the steps that you need to take to get yourself right with God. The gospel is an announcement that something has already happened, that God has already taken all the steps necessary to repair that broken relationship. The father is waiting with open arms. And like the prodigal son, we come home from our exile with a prepared speech about how we will make things right and we will become a servant and serve in the fields and try to pay back our own debts. And God puts his finger on our, on our lips and refuses to hear any of that. He embraces us in his arms as his long lost sons and daughters. He puts the ring on our finger and the robe on our back and invites us to his table to celebrate his son, his daughter, who once was dead, but now is alive, restored, and reconciled. That famous parable is really the parable of two sons. And you remember there was an older son who stayed loyal to his father, serving him, but in his own way was estranged and bitter. And he failed in his responsibility to care for his younger brother. In his wonderful little book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller tells the story of an American soldier or Marine who went missing in action in Vietnam. And during the war, his older brother, a civilian, flew to Vietnam and searched through the jungles to find his missing younger brother. He spent years searching for his brother. A faint picture of what Jesus does as the faithful son who perfectly reflects the heart of his father. Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. He's the father's agent of reconciliation who has followed us into the far country and gone to us in our filth with the pigs, longing to be fed at our father's table, bitterly regretting our lost choices. And Jesus tells us, my father has sent me. My father and your father has sent me to tell you that you are loved and you are wanted back home. Everything is ready. Come return with me. God is the source of reconciliation. Christ is his agent. God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. Everything God does is through Jesus. And here's the motive of reconciliation, the love of Christ. 
It's the love of Christ that compels me, Paul says in verse 14. He's, he's gripped, he's controlled, he's dominated by the saving love of Jesus. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. We must never imagine that the gospel is an impersonal mechanism for the saving of souls. And sometimes with all our doctrine and theology and interlocking parts, we can create that impression. But the heart of the gospel is the burning love of Christ for lost, sinful human beings. Love that is willing to go as far and as deep as is necessary to rescue what God loves. Not based on your loveliness, by the way. You're a pretty sad, dirty little person. But somehow, amazingly, you are loved by Christ. And the only explanation for that is the mystery that God is love. And his love, somehow, for reasons we cannot understand, pours itself out on desperately needy people. Perhaps we should stop for a moment and just close our eyes and take a breath and breathe in the fact that I am a sinner loved by Christ. Whatever complicated garbage is going on in your life, you and I are loved by Jesus this afternoon. And the scope of this reconciliation is the whole world. One has died for all, Paul says in verse 14. The atoning sacrifice is not for us only, as John says, the apostle, but for the sins of the whole world. There is an incredible wideness in the mercy of God, not limited to one or two or one small nation or a very limited group of people. God's love covers his entire creation, and he calls for all the lost sons and daughters of Adam to return home where they belong. You know, no one... No one is excluded from the reconciling love of God unless they exclude themselves. No one will ever return to the Father to find the door slammed in their face. There is no sin so deep that the love of Christ is not deeper still. And so if you're wondering, as you hear these words, is this for me? It is for you. It is for all of us without exception. God's invitation goes out to every person in this world, no matter how far they've wandered. And therefore, we have this marvelous responsibility as God's people to go ourselves into all the world with the authority of the risen Christ and announce his gospel to every creature under heaven and appeal to them, be reconciled to God. The father is waiting. Reconciliation is hard work. It is painful and it is difficult because evil cannot simply be waved away Our sin can't just be swept under the rug. Reconciliation required the Son of God to become one of us, to join the human race, to take 
our guilt and our shame on his shoulders and die as a condemned criminal in our place. The means of reconciliation is the cross of Christ. The only means possible to deal with our sin and our alienation and to bring us back to God. God made him who had no sin. Verse 21 to be sin for us. Jesus, the pure sinless lamb of God stands in the place of the entire human race. And he allows himself to be polluted, to be defiled, to be crushed beneath the weight of the sin of every single person who would believe on his name. And then he goes into the darkness alone to bear our sin and to destroy it forever. Reconciliation requires evil to be named and evil to be dealt with. And if our sin was just ignored, if it was just swept under the carpet, if it was just waved away, we would always live with the anxiety that one day, at the worst possible moment, our history would come back to destroy us. And when we look at the cross... We see the depths of the love of God, and we also see our greatest security, that our sins have been fully paid for, that Jesus absorbed and exhausted the punishment that they deserved. And now those sins are gone. They no longer exist, and we are wiped clean in the sight of God. But there's even more than that because God's reconciling work in Jesus doesn't just deal with our sins and deal with our past. It gives us a new future. There's a purpose in reconciliation and that is so that we might live for God. And he died for all, Paul says in verse 15, that those who live, here's the reason he died, in order that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus died and rose to deal with your sin, to sponge away your past, and to give you a new future, a new relationship with God, a new purpose in living for Jesus and serving his kingdom. And I want to make it really clear, this is not how we pay Jesus back for dying on the cross. He's not saying, look, guys, I did all this for you. Now, the least you can do is go serve me and share the gospel. This is about resurrection life surging into our dead souls and lifting us off the ground into a life of liberty and power. God does not ask you to live a new life for Christ without giving you new life from Christ. 
God does not ask you to live a new life for Christ without giving you new life from Christ. And if you try to live a new life for Christ without that, well, I can save you a lot of trouble by telling you, you are doomed to frustration. But Jesus does not just take us from the water and leave us bedraggled on the shore. He lifts us up and fills us with his spirit and sets us on our feet and sends us out on mission for his kingdom. And so the gospel is about more than forgiveness, wonderful as that is. It's about more than just changing some legal status in the background somewhere. It is about transformation of our entire lives, of being completely changed from the inside out, experiencing the resurrection power of Jesus inside our very hearts. That's what reconciliation involves. It's not just about dealing with past offenses. So then you and God can go your separate ways. It's about bringing you together, creating a renewed relationship of love. And when Jesus died for you, he purchased you with his own blood. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And the name of Christ is written across your foreheads. You are his precious possession, and he summons you to a new life oriented entirely around him. And the effects of this reconciliation is radically new relationships. Relationships mediated by the cross. It used to be, Paul says, that we evaluated other people from a worldly point of view. We use the standards and the measurements of the world, money, looks, education, status, to assign a mental score to people and determine whether or not they were worth us loving and being in a relationship with. But Jesus offering himself for sinners turns all of that upside down. And now our standard for evaluating people and for pursuing relationships is the wisdom of the cross. Because God has chosen the foolish things of this world, the weak things, the sinful things, including yourself. And when we experience, I mean really experience, reconciliation with God, when we come before God and receive his welcome, and we name our sins and he embraces us anyways, when we feel the power of forgiveness coursing through us, that cannot but change how we relate to other people. And any marriage or any family or any church or any community that does not have reconciled relationships is a friendship or a family or a marriage or a church that has not experienced reconciliation with God. Conversion, new life from the spirit, reorients all our relationships. It changes my relationship with God with Christ, with myself, and with other 
people and everything clicks and snaps into its right order. Reconciliation with God must lead to reconciliation with other people or it simply hasn't happened. You know, the doctrine of reconciliation is very fascinating, but Paul is more interested in the task of reconciliation. It's very nice to have all these things in perfect theological theory, but we're called to actually live this out in our lives and in our relationships, a life of reconciliation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And this passage is embedded in a letter to a church that had a very fractured, very strained relationship with Paul, where his authority as their apostle, their father in the faith, was doubted. And things had been said, things had been done, and this relationship is hanging on by a thread. But Paul is convinced that the church of Jesus is the evidence that the gospel is true. Here is how all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And when the people of God gather in relationship, it ought to be a powerful demonstration to a broken world that forgiveness, reconciliation, genuine love is not just possible in theory. It's happening right here, right now, in front of our very eyes. And this all happens by the saving action of God. And that's why Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Jesus is the hinge of all of our testimonies. We have a BC and an AD in each of our lives before I met Christ and after I met him. And life began when Jesus showed up in my little world. The old has passed away. Look, the new has come, Paul says, quoting Isaiah. You know, Sinclair Ferguson says that our greatest temptation is to believe that very little has happened to us through grace. That very little has happened to me through grace. And of course, the evil one is always trying to insert that thought in my mind that not much has changed since I met Jesus. And this is why as the church of God, we need to be reminding each other and encouraging each other that new life has come in Jesus and everything has changed. You know, Paul's grammar is a little odd because he literally says, if we were to translate literally, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, the he is or there is has been added to your translation to make it clear. He's saying, if anyone's in Christ, look, the new creation has already arrived. There's a new heavens and there's a new earth that God is bringing. But already in people who have turned to Jesus, the seed of the new creation is already present in their lives individually and together. And God says over us, behold, I am making all things new. 
And we get to participate already now in God's renewal of the entire universe through Jesus. And in a small way, our families, our marriages, our friendships, this church body is a little signpost of the new creation. A little fragment of the new heavens and the new earth is here. The future has already arrived. In part, of course, we all have our own sin and our own difficulties and our own odd personalities and awkward cross-cultural bridges to cross, of course. But we all have the spirit of Jesus living within us and among us. And we have this awesome call from God to demonstrate, not in our own strength, but by the spirit, what God wants to do with the entire world to reconcile everything to himself. You know, reconciliation is all about transformed relationships. And it's a big mistake to think of salvation as some kind of accounting transaction. I don't know about you, but I was taught to think of salvation as though somehow my sins get transferred to Jesus' account and then his righteousness get transferred to mine. He gets a four-digit SMS code on his phone, and he confirms the transaction, and it's deducted from his account and moves over to mine as though salvation was some kind of substance or gas that we could take away from Jesus and put inside ourselves. And I think that way of thinking results in unchanged lives that are disconnected from Jesus as though forgiveness or reconciliation or salvation was something that we could just take from God and then go on our own way with our status changed, with our future changed, but without our inner lives changed. And for Paul, salvation is not an impersonal accounting or legal transaction. It's about personal identification with Jesus. There's no righteousness that's transferred out of Jesus. You are transferred into him. You are placed in Christ when you believe and when you are baptized. And he becomes your new reality. Jesus is your universe. And you and Jesus are united. You become one. You are identified with Christ. You participate in his death and in his life. You share everything of who he is and what he has done. And as you do that by the Holy Spirit, you are transformed. You are changed into his image. It's very odd, isn't it, that in that last verse... Paul says that Christ was made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I've always sort of mentally forced that into we receive the righteousness of God. But that's not what Paul says. We become 
the righteousness of God. And whenever you see odd things like that, don't smooth it out to make it fit with your existing theology. Stop a second and meditate on what God is saying in the Bible. We become the righteousness of God. I think Paul is saying that when we encounter Jesus and there's this marvelous interchange that as his disciples, we embody God's saving justice in the world. The church becomes the saving justice of God. And the reconciled community becomes the reconciling community. God mends our relationship with him and then over time with one another. We're not meant to be the terminus of God's reconciling work. We're called to join God in his mission to reconcile the entire world through Christ, to become God's righteousness in the world, to become his saving justice. So people say, where is the righteousness of God in this world? And we can say, look at us by the spirit of God through a living and abiding relationship with Jesus. We have been transformed to participate in and to reflect the righteousness of God. We're called to show the world what it means to be friends with God again. To show the world what it really means to live in love with one another. The task of reconciliation is that we be God's peacemakers in this world. There's no doctrine of reconciliation without the mission of reconciliation. And when we experience reconciliation with God and we're transformed by Jesus, we begin to share God's generous heart. To be compelled with the love of Christ ourselves, to plead with others, be reconciled with God. We want more people to enjoy what we enjoy. It's not meant to be a small, private little dinner party, the kingdom of God. It is a massive feast to which the whole world is invited, every tribe and tongue and nation. And as God appealed through Paul, he still appeals today. Be reconciled to God. Come home to the waiting father. The way is open. Everything has been prepared. Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead so that we might receive God's gift of a new reconciled relationship. And in a few moments, we are going to partake of this meal of reconciliation, this sign that we are welcomed in the presence of God, that all is well that all is well, all manner of things are well through Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father, that you have taken the initiative to reconcile us to yourself through Christ. And from first to last, Lord, this gospel is from you. 
and it is about you. Help us by your spirit to live in the good of this reconciliation. We are ashamed to say that though we are reconciled, we often live like unreconciled people with you and with each other. And we spend so little time with you with such weak confidence in your welcome. And I pray for all who are timid, for all who doubt, for all who are oppressed by their sin, that you would work in our hearts a deep sense of your welcome. Help us to hear the Father's voice, to feel his embrace, to be brought by him to his table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.